Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 5, Tabasco, Part 3. The Descendants of the Puma. listening to a rendition of the song La Tutupana, a typical dance performed in Tabasco and one of the many regional variations of the couple's dances that took hold from the 17th to 19th century with the popularization of El Zapateo and other similar dances. In this episode, we will not be addressing the more modern dances of Tabasco, such as La Tutupana. Instead, our focus will be on the indigenous ones related to the Chontal. But make no mistake, dances such as La Tutupana are equally important to the people of Tabasco, and if I find time in the later entries concerning this Tabascan time period, I may include them during those episodes. A tutupan is a kind of bird native to Mexico and Central America. Known as a gray-necked wood rail, the bird would prove an inspiration to the many musicians that have passed through the region. Rails are small wetland birds that prefer to walk upright on the ground but can be found perched in tree branches and bushes. They are also known as tres potes, or three pots, due to the sound their call is said to make. As I move on to the show itself, this episode, you might notice, may run a little longer than usual, but I simply couldn't keep chopping up the information on the Chontal any further. Thus, I decided to finish up with their discussion in one last episode so we can move on to some of the other tribes in our narrative. They will still be around, we just simply won't be focusing so much of our time and energy on them. There is just simply not enough time in the world to describe and explain all of the facts, features, and speculations about these fascinating peoples. I hope the longer length isn't an issue, but I will try to keep things around an hour long, but might have to extend it depending on the depth of information I will attempt to convey each time you are here. As always, comments and feedback are welcome to both the email, thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com, and the new Facebook page. Now, as promised, the Histories of Mexico Facebook page is up and running, but I have yet to populate it with anything very worthwhile. So for now, please just know it is there for communicative purposes. I plan on adding a ton of useful information and links to many useful sources. So worry not, as I do have many plans for it. Before I begin, I must also take a moment to credit a few sources which were indispensable for the creation of this episode. First, there is the Instituto Nacional de Pueblos Indígenas, or the National Institute of Indigenous Pueblos also known as INPI. 
Their website has proven massively helpful in identifying the tribes and their geographical locations, as well as providing an overview of their history, culture, and present lives of the tribe members themselves. Next, we have the website musicaenmexico.com.mx. This site holds a wealth of information on the dances, rituals, and music of each state of Mexico. And this episode could not have been written without their amazing depository of cultural information and videos. Finally, there is turimexico.com, which aided immensely with the dates of the local religious festivals and celebrations. All three sites are written in Spanish, so if you have a firm grasp on the language or know how to utilize Google Translate effectively, then please visit all of them for mountains of useful and fascinating information concerning the native tribes of Mexico. Finally, we must again thank Dr. Diogenes for his extremely thorough and informative history of Tabasco, which has provided the necessary information to make this episode even remotely interesting. At this point, we are going to shift gears a bit and go into a discussion of the ancient Choco people and their religion as conveyed by Dr. Diogenes, as well as modern Chontals and a few of their more emblematic ritual dances, both pre- and post-Hispanic. However, this will by no means be a full list on all the dances typical to Tabasco, as that would take multiple episodes to cover. There will be some which I may have missed that are deemed important by the Tabascan communities themselves, so if anyone knows of any I must absolutely include, please reach out and let me know, as I may include them in some future Revisit episode. After this quick cultural episode, we will move right back into the historical by exploring the next tribe on our list, the Tzetzals, and their mysterious origins as the followers of Votan. But for now, Let's put ourselves back in the pre-Columbian wetlands of Tabasco and explore our Puma friends and their culture. Now, as we have seen through the various mentions of them in the many wars that took place in the Yucatan Peninsula, the Choco people were warriors first and foremost. They would dedicate themselves to warfare and conquest, constantly attacking and expanding into neighboring territories. The Choco people were so dedicated to victory that Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes claims that when there was a battle and the warriors were victorious, the entire town would come out to cheer and welcome their triumphant return home. But if they lost, then the defeated warriors would sneak back into their homes in the dead of night, gathering their possessions and families and fleeing into the jungle, fearing for both their status and lives. Victory was the only mark of success and contribution to the community for the Choco male warrior, an idea instilled in them since birth, as we will come to see. The Choco themselves were rather xenophobic and rarely trusted any outsiders, but they were hardworking and family-oriented. Short but well-built with black hair and brown eyes, the Choco, like most tribes of their time, was very superstitious, believing in magic and animal shamanism. On the day of their birth, their destinies were believed to be cosmically bound to an animal. The puma, as we know, was ko, but others existed, such as balan, or tiger. Molua was turkey. Chan was serpent. And maza was deer, to name a few. These animal guides or guardians represented a person's second soul, in a sense. 
and if anything happened to that animal in the physical world, then the corresponding person's soul was considered to have been wounded as well. Spiritual healing was possible through a myriad of cleansing rituals and ceremonies performed by the village shaman. Just one of the many and varied services these village medicine men would perform. While the shaman was expected to deal with the spiritual needs of the village, oftentimes by uttering magic words to banish evil, cleanse buildings or ritual spaces, ward off evil spirits from vulnerable individuals, and other related metaphysical services, they were also responsible for physical healing and care by brewing medicines through their extensive hornicultural knowledge in order to alleviate pains or help with the loose tooth of a child, for example. The shaman was very important to the Choco way of life. The Chocos also believed in brujos, or evil shaman, who were old, sunken-eyed men who possessed the ability to turn into horrible, wild beasts. Meanwhile, their female counterparts, the hechiceras, or sorceresses, were said to have terrorized villages by turning into balls of fire or air that spun like little tornadoes, screaming through the night and breaking into properties to suck the blood of children, steal animals, and destroy crops. It would be the shaman's job to ward off these malevolent forces. However, the villagers too had a responsibility to the shamans, which, if neglected, threatened to bring about the very calamities they intended to avoid. The balance between villager and religious leader was a tenuous one throughout the pre-Hispanic world. In the Choco villages, life appears to have been a bit more balanced, with the religious leaders not wielding nearly as much power as in other Mesoamerican tribes, such as the Peninsular Maya with their Halak Uniques or priest kings of Chichen Itza and Mayapan encountered last episode, or the semi-dictatorial Aztec priests who utilized their bloody religious sacrifices to pacify and quell the numerous citizens of their vast empire. The Choco shamans did not share this level of control, for it was the warriors who wielded the real power in the early Yucatan society, an aspect enforced by the society at birth. However, the humble shaman would remain an important facet of Chontal tribal life. One of the main functions of the shamans can be best seen upon the birth of a Choco child. The family and friends would gather at the home of the new parents in order to participate in the celebrations. The midwife, meanwhile, also known as a chichihua, held the honor and responsibility of placing the ritual objects in the newborn's hands, depending on the gender of the child. Boys would receive an arrow and tiny quiver. Girls, meanwhile, would have a miniature bowl, pitcher, and a corn grinding stone placed in their tiny hands by the chichihua. The significance was simple. The newborn was being given the tools with which he or she would give back to the tribe. Boys were expected to defend their village with their bows and arrows as strong warriors, while the girls were expected to work in the home and support the family by becoming caring cooks and mothers. A few days after the birth, another ceremony would be held to name the young girl or boy. A carefully observed ritual calendar required the necessary adjustments according to the date of the birth in order to produce the proper name. Another example of the many functions the local shamans and religious priests would perform for the community. They carefully observed and tracked natural phenomena 
such as the movement of stars and celestial bodies, the cycle of fruiting and harvest, the frequency and intensity of flooding and storms, the movement and behavior of animals, all painstakingly tracked and taken into consideration. The resulting date would correspond to a figure, totem, or some mythological entity on their calendar, and would result in that individual's name or names. This would be announced to the entire tribe, to much dancing, banqueting, gifts for the receiving family, and partaking in the sacred fermented cacao drinks, such as pozol, as a liquid offering to their gods, an action known as taking libations, but really is just fancy speak for religiously sanctioned drinking. The Choco religion itself centered around Ko, their principal god. They also believed in a great spirit, Tlapokwa Totalema, who created everything, including Ko, while Ko, in turn, created the aspects of the physical world we now inhabit. This great spirit would start as a ball of fire and smoke, which was finally doused by torrential rains and winds. These waters then pooled into the canyons and depressions of the earth, forming rivers, lakes, and oceans. The heat of the sun and the blowing of the wind would eventually evaporate away the oceans, revealing mountains underneath, plants, animals, and people then appearing as well. This is when Ko would appear to take his place as head god over all others as per the sign of the great spirit Tlapokwa Tlotalema, who lived in the sky and was creator of everything. The great spirit then created lesser deities to govern not only the physical phenomena of the universe, but also the fates and fortunes of humans and the more spiritual aspects of reality. Some of the deities worshipped were Teokiwa, the resplendent mother of the earth, Hora Khan, the god of thunder and storms, whose name is also connected to the word for hurricane, which occur often in the Gulf of Mexico. Kuhilba was the lord of the mountains, the god of the underworld, considered the source of evil, earthquakes, and flooding. Muku Lechan was Quetzalcoatl, or Kukulkan, the feathered serpent introduced by the Toltec Itzas and likely came to represent a wind god to the Chontal people. Tamul Kantepec was the god of agriculture. Yum Kimil, the god of death. Ixchel was the goddess of the moon. And Alagom Naom was the goddess of the earth, quite literally represented earth itself, and also the daughter of Teokohiwa, the resplendent Mother Earth. According to the sources, including Dr. Reyes, the Chocos would also revere spiritual gods who governed far more esoteric concepts. For example, Tlapokwa Paunatl was the god of the sun, but more specifically, the god responsible for providing the heat of the sun. Tlapokwa Cajuntla was another goddess of the moon, but whereas Ixchel was the goddess of the physical moon itself, Tlapokwa Cajuntla was the goddess of the light of the moon that illuminated the world of the living while the sun was on the other side of the earth, illuminating the underworld. Tlapokwa Caltlaja, meanwhile, was the god of the rains that doused the original smoky ball of fire that would become the earth. Considered god of the sea, rivers, lakes, lagoons, streams, and springs, basically all bodies of water 
fell under his domain. Tlapokwa Kutrami would be another storm god, but specifically god of the thunder and lightning itself. Tlapokwa Kieltlahua was another air god, but more like the god responsible for the breath of all living things and the one who blew in order to evaporate the rains of Tlapokwa Kaltlaja and reveal the mountains and valleys of the land below. Tlapokwa Kielfapa, meanwhile, was the god of the harvest and responsible for sustaining the life force that makes all living things grow. Unlike Tamul Kantepec, who represented the physical agriculture, harvests, and other natural aspects of the Choco world, such as forests which belong to Kantepec. Most interesting to me is the god they had for death. Unlike Yum Kimil, who represented physical death of the body, Tlapokwa Lamaya was the god of the eternal sleep and represented the spirit's final rest after the body died. Finally, Tlapokwa Pulegui was god of war, and what else would be more spiritual to the warlike Chontal than war itself? I find the distinction the ancient Choco people had for the gods depicting their physical and metaphysical phenomena fascinating. This shares similarities to the Christian beliefs of a Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit aspect really taking an active role in the day-to-day -day lives of the villagers. It leads me to wonder if this predisposition to religious beliefs of a spiritual nature made the Catholic conversion pill easier for the Chontal Indian to swallow when the Spanish missionaries came to town. What we do know is that the Chontal made it much easier for the missionaries to replace their places of worship compared to some of their contemporaries, for the early Choco did not build any temples to house their gods, instead opting to worship their deities at the edge of a canyon, on top of a hill, or the shade of a highly revered tree, anywhere that was outside of civilization and instead in the embrace of the natural world. Their altars were likewise small mounds made of natural materials, such as rock, wood, or clay, upon which a carved image of the particular idol being worshipped would be placed. Their rituals involved music, singing, dancing, and tributes made to the deities. These included various flowers, fruits, and other foods, most represented in the baile viejo, or the old dance of the Chontal. We shall cover the steps of a few of their rituals, which they still practice to this day, in the second half of this episode. There were also the occasional sacrifice. The Chocos, however, did not practice the human variety, instead opting to offer their supreme gods small animals such as birds, rabbits, dogs, and the occasional deer, which makes sense as their head god was the literal divine puma and it must have seemed prudent to feed it animals they ate in the wild, rather than humans. And while pumas certainly did eat the occasional human, it seems the Chocos wanted to avoid encouraging their principal god to develop a taste for human flesh. As a young Choco child grew to the age of 14 for boys and 12 or 13 for girls, their parents would begin to arrange them a suitable match in the village. Yes, the Chocos engaged in arranged matchmaking. However, the decision would ultimately be left up to the children themselves in order to ensure a long-lasting union. Once the young groom had consented to the match, 
the eldest member of his family, would visit the young bride's family to ask her hand, which, if she also consented, then the two parties would exchange small tokens of commitment and set a date for the official and ceremonial exchange of gifts between the two families. These gifts would include precious stones, shells, clay utensils and tableware, and other items of religious importance, such as wooden carved masks and palm-woven headwear, which would become very important to the modern Chontal and be represented in nearly all of their modern rituals. The engaged children were allowed to officially meet during the gift-giving ceremony, and the date of the wedding would be set, which would take place at the house of the bride in front of her familial god's altar. Everything ended in a grand dance, abundant feasting, more libations, which possibly lasted two or more days, depending on the economic status of the union. The multi-day celebration being a feature that both the ancient Choco and modern Mexican happily share. During pre-Hispanic times, the Choco men wore animal skins, including tiger, fox, or deer, fitted to the waist and adorned with feathers of multiple colors. Another animal skin was worn across the chest and over the shoulder. Atop their head, they wore a leather penacho, adorned with large multicolored feathers that covered their long hair, which fell to their back. They wore earrings of gold or copper and multicolored shells, stones, or seed necklaces. They would also wear wide palm-woven hats known as jopo, nowadays known as sombreros chontal. The farming males would work the fields, while the warriors would train and hunt to both provide for the village and sharpen their skills, while during times of war they would be out on campaign. The women, meanwhile, wore animal skins or cloth skirts with the chest exposed, adorned with colored stones, shells, feathers, and flowers when they would go out to social functions. More often than not, the women were found at home, grinding maize into flour to make tortillas, grinding cacao, preparing the pozol, pineapple guarapo, filleting sea bass, preparing turtles, iguanas, crabs, deer, armadillos, and other animals, as well as weaving mats, baskets, hats, blankets, and other useful household items. And as a quick side, guarapo is just sugarcane juice left to ferment, which is then sweetened with other fruits, such as pineapple, and enjoyed by the Chontal into the present day. Both men and women were typically barefoot. However, the nobility was able to afford primitive leather sandals tied with strands of fiber. The Chocos had primitive methods of tracking the movement of the celestial bodies in their sky, which they utilized mostly for agricultural pursuits, such as knowing when to plant and when to harvest crops, and for naming rituals, as we saw when we discussed the birth of a Choco child into the community. The first day of their year began on the 16th of July, and on this day they would have religious prayers, feasts, dances, and music to welcome the new year and petition the Great Spirit to bring better days. When the Chocos encountered the Mayan Votanides slash Tzetzals, they would adopt these tribes' calendars for being superior to their own. This lack of advanced timekeeping stands out to me as a more striking evidence against the Chocos being descendants of the Olmecs, for the Olmecs did have a long count calendar system 
much more advanced than the one utilized by the Chocos. Perhaps the knowledge was lost in the fleeing of La Venta. However, to me, the evidence just doesn't seem to add up, despite how neat an answer it would provide to the origins of the Chontal. Upon death, the Choco was dressed in their best outfit, adorned with their favorite jewelry and weapons, placed on the ground atop a ceremonial mat, and their head decorated with an image of their favorite idol. This wake would be attended at the home of the deceased by family members and friends who would bring presents to help with the cost of the funeral. Together they would all dig a grave in the thicket of the forest where they would set up an altar to Ko, the principal god of the Choco. The body was taken to their tomb in a solemn procession and various clay utensils and ceremonial foods were placed upon it as nourishment on their journey through the Shibalba, the Mayan underworld. The cadaver was then placed sitting upright, facing the east, in order to welcome the god of the sun who provides the sun's warmth, Tlapokwa Paunatl, and finally covering the grave with dirt. If the deceased was wealthy, a memorial tomb was built above them, which the villagers would adorn with flowers associated with the dead. One of these was the Aztec Marigold, also known as the Day of the Dead Flower. The Chocos in life, meanwhile, were great hunters and exemplary warriors, but not the best builders. Their homes were constructed of grass, guano, palm leaves, mud, and other natural materials. They did not participate in extensive structure building like the Peninsular Mayans did, and this is one key difference that they had with their esteemed neighbors, who were prolific builders. This likewise means that there are very few archaeological Choco sites to visit today since all of their ancient structures have since been reclaimed by Mother Nature or completely built on top of, as was the case in their capital of Potonchan when the Spanish converted it to Santa Maria de la Victoria in 1519. Although they may not have been great builders, they were highly successful farmers and relied heavily on the production of maize, cacao, chiles, beans, pineapples, squash, and achiote for sustenance, while rubber, certain tree pigments, and tobacco were harvested for trade with the neighboring tribes and the greater Mesoamerican markets accessible by the Gulf of Mexico to their north. They would also hunt birds, reptiles, and small quadrupeds using the bow and arrow, sling, and blowpipe for the smaller sized game. During times of peace with their neighbors, they were experienced traders, given that their lands stood at a trade crossroads between the various tribes of the time. We have also discussed the broad trade routes established all the way to the mouth of the Mississippi by the Floridian and Atlantic Potones, who traded the gold and silver they mined from the Appalachian Mountains, likely for the rubber, pigments, foods, and pelts which could only be found in the Tabascan jungles. The other items typically traded at this time were cacao, maize, feathers, pelts from various animals such as jaguars, tapirs, deer, and boars, caiman hides, turkeys, turtles and their shells, and smoked alligator meat. They were also experienced stone crafters and artisans, able to polish jade, obsidian, and quartz to craft beautiful figurines and ornaments depicting their deities in various animated expressions laughing, crying, and threatening 
depending on the angle the light hit the face. Unfortunately, time and centuries of Spanish subjugation would not allow the knowledge of stone polishing to survive into modernity, and the modern Chantal have all but forgotten their ancient stone mastery. While they were great farmers and traders, the Choco were above all warriors, and would protect themselves by going into battle with a buckler or small shield and padded shirt for protection, usually padding them with tree leaves and cotton. They would fight with a variety of weapons, such as the bow and arrow, the sling, wooden clubs and maces, the occasional spear, and something referred to by the sources as the Macana Puntillada, which roughly translates to pointy baton. So in my head, I imagine a kind of spiked mace being thrown around in the pre-Hispanic jungles of Tabasco. These spikes likely the product of the Choco obsidian polishing methods. Their tactics consisted of hit-and-run guerrilla warfare, often attacking the enemy's central plaza in multiple groups from multiple directions. Masters of the surprise attack, this may also have been due to the fact that they did not practice much diplomacy, therefore could attack at any moment for any reason. If the enemy fled, the Chocos would leave them be, while they piled the bodies of the defeated enemy in a great pyre at the center of their conquered city dancing and singing in a circle. Any unlucky prisoner would likely be tortured, killed, then tossed into the fire. The Chocos took the term, no prisoners, quite literally. However, I do believe it was a better fate than those captured by the Aztecs, who would then go and sacrifice him to their gods. But that's just my personal preference. All this may sound fairly brutal, and that's because it is. But make no mistake that by this point in Mexican tribal relations, it was a literal free-for-all, and life was harsh and violent by default. These tactics were not an exception, but rather the rule, and any tribes that failed to adopt them would run the risk of being killed off or pushed out of their own lands by those that specialized in them. This is likely what happened to the Mo, the people of the Seba, and any tribe not ruthless enough to adopt the tactics necessary to survive in this violent time period. Long after the Spanish officially moved their stuff into Mexico in 1521 with the fall of the Aztec Empire, a church was built in 1614 in Nacajuca, the center of the Yucatan world. The reason it took so long for a church to be established here was that by this point in history, the Chocos, now fully recognized by the Spanish as the Chontal, were a whisper of their former greatness. Gone were the days of strong warriors pouring out of Chocotan lands to attack and conquer everything in sight. Their current status as a tributary state to the Aztec Empire led the Spanish to believe these people undeserving of their immediate attention. Instead, they focused their conquering efforts on more lucrative prizes such as the Aztecs in central Mexico, the Zoques in Chiapas, the Mayas in the Yucatan, and the Guatemalan Mayas in the Deep South. This may have also been intentional, as the Chocos of Tabasco took a page from the playbook of the Floridian guides of Hernando de Soto, and instead pointed the Spanish towards a more lucrative prize, in this case, the Aztec Empire. This would afford the Chontal nearly a hundred years of minimal Spanish interference and likely provided the last gasp 
of cultural and religious freedom in the face of their oncoming assimilation. This city of Nakahuka would be the only urban center of the Chontal to survive the colonial period, thanks in part to the introduction of European farm animals, which provided a limit to the land being gobbled up by plantation and cultivation enterprises throughout the newly established kingdom of Yucatan. The political organization Tabasco would fall under for the next 300 years. Many modern Chontal, meanwhile, engage in agriculture, fishing, raising of livestock, and hunting of small game to provide subsistence for their families. Palm wood artistry is also a modest source of income for the locals. The region also used to be known for the production of a ground oyster shell lime used for mortar and bricks, which the Comalcalcans introduced into the region and can be seen in many of the archaeological constructions still open to the public. However, the advent of mass-produced modern building materials has rendered this method of production obsolete. The language of the Yokotano, meanwhile, the Yoko Ochoko, as they refer to it, is a member of the Mayan family of languages. In 2020, it was spoken by about 60,000 Yokotano people and according to the National Catalog of Indigenous Languages of Mexico, or INALI for short, there are at least four distinct dialects in the language. Central, spoken in Nacajuca. Northern, located in Centla. Southern, found in Macuspana. And Eastern, utilized primarily in the community of Tamulte de las Sabanas, a neighborhood located east of Villahermosa. While most modern Chontal are bilingual, the language and all four of its dialects are considered at high risk of extinction. Although recent conservation and education efforts have resulted in some success, the risk of this language dying out, like so many others in Mexico, is sadly ever-present. Here is a quick snippet of Yocotan native Carlos Alfredo Osorio Sanchez speaking his native indigenous language of Chontal in a speech given to the Mexican version of the House of Representatives called the Chamber of Deputies or Cámara de Diputados in Mexico City on March 24, 2022. Carlos Alfredo Osorio Sanchez is speaking to the prestigious chamber during an event known as Las Lenguas Toman la Tribuna, or The Languages Take the Podium. This program was introduced in 2020 in order to promote indigenous languages at the highest echelons of power and give them more exposure within the legislative process. As far as to what Carlos Alfredo is saying, he is relaying an introduction to his people, saying he represents the Yocotan people of Tabasco and describes a bit about the land and where they come from their many rivers and wetlands, and a bit about their culture. You can hear the speech in its entirety, as well as read its translation on the Cámara de Diputados website, 
or by looking up Las Lenguas Toman La Tribuna, and I will try to include a link to it on the web. Most native peoples who do speak at this event tend to wear their typical attire to the chamber, and so you can get a glimpse of some of the typical dress wear when viewing these speeches in their native tongues. Regarding the modern Chontal's dress wear, we can see it is reminiscent of older types of clothing called trajes chocos, typical of colonial times when men had to cultivate and harvest vast fields in stifling tropical temperatures. To mitigate some of the heat, men would wear a white cotton shirt and pants with black boots or shoes, a black belt, and a hat to keep out the sun in the style called Chontal, which we know is also called a jopo. A red handkerchief is also worn around the neck. Women wear wide skirts trimmed with a distinct ruffle. Underneath the skirt is a slip meant to fluff the dress and give the appearance of a smaller waist, while the blouse is typically white with an embroidered band of bright colors often designed with animal or flower motifs. The short sleeves of the blouse end in square forms and patterns. Women also carry a red handkerchief and shawl called a rebozo, usually in bright colors that complement the skirt. Their shoes are also black. This attire can still be seen worn day to day in the humbler regions and pueblos that might land on the more rural side of the city spectrum, but they are brought out by most predominantly during the many festivals and cultural celebrations typical of Tabascan towns and cities. So let's take this as an opportunity to shift from talking about the Choco people and begin discussing some of their celebrations. Despite the unrelenting march of progress and modernization in Mexico initiated by the Spanish, traditional beliefs and customs still maintain a tight grip on a large portion of the general population, and nowhere is this more apparent than during the Mexican cultural celebrations. Every little pueblo is likely to have a saint's day as well as dozens of ethnic, regional, and religious celebrations happening throughout the year. I will attempt to highlight some of my favorites and mention other important or unique ones, but the list is dizzying and it cannot be overstated how obscure and localized yet significant these observances can be to the local population and how lucky one can feel to arrive at a new town and witness one in full swing, either by design or accident. We have already spoken about the Tabasco Fair, which has its origins as an agricultural exposition and was held in 1957 for the first time in its current form. It can comfortably take the title as biggest celebration in Tabasco. The fairgrounds themselves are the second largest in the country, standing at a sizable 56 hectares or about 104 football fields. Celebrated in Villahermosa, the Tabasco Fair is also where La Flor de Oro, or the Golden Flower of Tabasco, is elected, a statewide beauty pageant where each municipality has a representative competing. The elected winner becomes the face of the state and works the following year to promote the next fair. Another important event is the Parade of Allegorical Floats. And again, each municipality has an exhibit on wheels with allegorical stories and symbols of its region, all the while their embajadoras, or ambassadors, parade around the streets of Villahermosa in traditional dresses and from whose ranks the candidates for Flor de Oro are selected. 
And just as a reminder, this fair is typically held in the first half of May. Each municipality has its own celebrations, however, so we will try to cover the major ones, or at least most well-known, starting with the religious and moving on to the more cultural. While each Pueblo can have a patron saint day they celebrate, we will go over the major religious ones here in case you ever find yourself in Tabasco and find the time to visit and witness one of these unforgettable events. Beginning in Paraíso, situated on the Gulf of Mexico's coast, we have three major festivals. On the 2nd of February, there is a celebration for the Virgen de la Candelaria, a Spanish santa meant to celebrate the purification of the Virgin Mary precisely 40 days after the birth of Christ. On the 25th of April, we see a festival for San Marcos, or Mark the Evangelist, who founded one of the most important Episcopal sees or Catholic spheres of influence, that of Alexandria, in the first century AD, and whose symbol is a winged lion. Finally, on the 16th of July, we see celebrations in honor of the Virgen del Carmen, another of these Spanish santas, who interestingly is the protector of all seamen, fishermen, and scuba divers. Now, most might just read through the dates and move on, but we here at the Histories of Mexico know better and have to take a second look since we already established that July 16th is a holy day to the Chontal as it was the beginning of their earliest calendar. And who did the modern descendants of the Putunes choose to celebrate on their Chontal New Year? Why, the protector of seafarers. Remember what the name of the Putun capital was called? Akala or Akalan, land of the canoe people? It seems that the Chontal managed to find a way to celebrate their heritage and culture right under the noses of their Spanish overlords a practice we may see repeated more than once throughout the centuries of Spanish rule. Balangan Municipality in the West also celebrates San Marcos on the 25th of April with dances and a fair held in the capital, which is also called Balancan. While regional festivals are held in the small but numerous communities that make up this sparsely populated area. In Teapa to the south, there is a celebration for Santa Cruz, or the Blessed Cross, a celebration held on the 3rd of May, which aims to venerate the physical cross itself. All across the region, you will see crosses colorfully adorned with flowers and other decorative materials during these celebrations. Jumping back to Comalcalco on the 15th of May, you will see the festivals of San Isidro Laborador, or Saint Isidor, the laborer or the farmer. Born in Madrid, he would also become the patron saint of the Spanish capital and known for his piety towards the poor and animals. While he was the patron saint of farmers, as his name would suggest, he would also become the patron saint of bricklayers, and this makes his celebration in Comalcalco very interesting, since Comalcalco is Nahua for place of the comales, with a comal being a smooth, flat surface made of metal or clay which lays over a heat source in order to heat tortillas, toast spices, or roast peppers and other vegetables. The key part here is that they were made exclusively of clay in pre-Hispanic times, and the reason this abandoned Mayan site was named Place of the Comales by the Nahua who discovered it is because that was the closest word they had for clay buildings. 
the Nawa did not work with the same limestone mortar and clay bricks that the Comalcalcans had been constructing with for centuries. As we will come to see in the next episode, the Mayans who built their structures in Comalcalco were prolific utilizers of the brick. And again, it seems the indigenous tribes who began celebrating San Isidro might have known exactly what they were doing in their seemingly careful and deliberate selection of patron saints. The celebration, meanwhile, is your typical festival and dance affair, with the added sprinkle of fireworks to spice the whole event up. If we go a little south of Comalcalco, into Cárdenas, we see on the 13th of June a festival to San Antonio, one of the most famous saints in the world, and the festival is held on the date of his death in 1231 CE. He is a patron to many things, most notably travelers, finding lost items or people, and the sick and infirm. He would also come to be another patron of fishermen and the indigenous peoples of the Americas, so many towns and pueblos across Mexico will celebrate this saint's day. Here, too, there will be markets, dancing, traditional music, and fireworks long into the night. In the coastal community of Sanchez Magallanes, east of Paraíso, and likely the site of the Nahua community known as Awalulco, one of the three Nahua communities we introduced in the last episode, we find patron festivals to Nuestra Señora Santa Ana, the mother of Mary and thus grandmother to Jesus Christ. She is often celebrated along her husband, San Joaquin, who, legend has it, conceived their daughter Mary with one kiss under a golden gate in Jerusalem, and both are celebrated on the 26th of July, a date now also recognized by the Catholic Church as a day to celebrate grandparents and their role in society. Finally, in Huimanguillo, there are the festivals dedicated to San Ramon, although I can't find much information on which specific San Ramon they celebrate and why. There is a very famous Saint Roman, the Black Christ of Campeche, which will come up in that state's episode. But I can't imagine a festival so personal to the Campechan people also being celebrated in Huimanguillo. So if anyone has any more information on the subject, please let me know through Facebook or email. Regardless, the sources claim that the people celebrate all the same with the typical parades throughout the city streets, markets, food stands, and dancing throughout the night. But who can dance without music? And traditional Tabascan music, as with most things in Tabasco, has its basis in Mayan traditions. Mostly based on the flutes and whistles made of reeds and ceramics and various percussion instruments that the Mayan musicians used to play. Unfortunately, purely indigenous music has vanished as there was no way to record pre-Hispanic musicians performing. The indigenous styles would soon be replaced with an overpowering European influence. Furthermore, the missionaries who set up shop in the region believed the native dances to be pagan and the influence of Satan, so they destroyed any instruments they could find and punished any musicians for playing satanic music. This would eventually lead to a colonial style brought by the Europeans called Fandanguillo, played by small orchestras composed of wind instruments, but now included marimbas and drums called tamborileros, of which we have heard many examples of in the various intro and outro songs. A dance of the same name is credited for the inspiration of zapateos, which were incredibly popular when they were introduced, 
and most states of Mexico have a regional variation of, although it is believed the dance originally developed here in Tabasco. The improvisation of early colonial musicians developed regional flavors of rhymes and riffs called bombas, with a man and woman answering each other musically through both masculine and feminine musical motifs in dancing interactions which can be seen in many regional dances across Mexico. The development of dance as a cultural feature of Mexico is a topic I wish to explore more in a supplemental episode, but you will see time and time again the many states of Mexico taking the culture brought to them by the Spaniards and enhancing it in different ways by region, all slightly reminiscent of each other, but different in such subtle and beautiful ways. Despite a lack of first-hand knowledge on how music was played by early Mayans, we do have some cultural knowledge which was passed down through the modern Chontal, along with archaeological evidence of their instruments and a few which actually survived the Spanish conquest. In his seminal work, The Musical Instruments of the Maya, Roberto Riviera y Riviera describes the following items. First, he divides the instruments of the Maya into two distinct groups, percussion instruments and wind instruments, or instruments played with one's breath. Beginning with the percussion instruments, we have a variety including drums made of wood with deer hides stretched over the openings and tied with ropes. Drums were further classified into two groups, the larger ones known as female or hembras, and the smaller ones known as male drums or machos. Emptied out turtle shells were also used, typically made from the shells of a family of turtles known as sliders, which can be found all across the Americas, with the red-eared slider being the one you have most likely seen before. The turtle meat would be cooked and eaten, while the shell would be cleaned and decorated and was hit with the deer horn in order to produce a sound. It sounded much like this. The sonajas, or rattles, would be the typical maracas one would imagine, and were made from dried out and hollowed squash with their dried seeds left inside to produce the rattling noise. There also existed a wearable version where dried cacao beans were tied around a piece of rope to be worn on the legs or arms and shaken to the rhythm of dancing. Chinchines, meanwhile, are like a single large maraca with little dried seeds, beans, or rocks sealed into a large, hollowed-out gourd affixed to a handle which was shaken to produce the sounds of falling rain. Finally, the most interesting instrument, in my opinion, was the tuncul, also known as a teponatzli, which is a hollowed-out trunk of wood with two tongues made by incision in the shape of an H on the top. The tuncul is hit with a drumstick at different points on the tongues which produces the various tones and harmonics associated with the instrument. The utilization of this tuncul in Tabasco likely influenced the adoption of marimbas in the state's musical identity. Marimbas are basically wooden xylophones and have become a staple in Tabascan musical composition. The tuncul, meanwhile, sounds something like this.
These instruments all fall under the classification of idiophones of direct contact. That is, the entire instrument vibrates and must be struck, shaken, or scraped in order to produce its sound. All the instruments would likely have been decorated with images of plants, animals, or an image of one of their gods. All of these instruments are still played to this day in parts of Mexico as part of old rituals, and their craftsmanship can range from very basic to amazing displays of art that are more sculpture than instrument. The other group of Mayan instruments described by Roberto Riviera were the wind instruments, and they were mostly comprised of marine shells and handmade flutes and trumpets. The most commonly used shell would have been the Florida horse conch, or Triplophusus giganteus. This extremely large predatory snail lives in Atlantic waters and can grow to lengths of 60 centimeters or nearly two feet. They are the largest gastropod found in Atlantic waters and one of the largest found anywhere in the world, although their name is a bit misleading as they are not true conches, meaning they are not part of the family of conches known as strombidae. Rather, they belong to the spindle snail family of Fasciolaridae. The ancient Maya would use this shell as a trumpet of sorts by cutting off its tip and blowing into it to signal times of war, to call the villagers together for a ceremony, or any general announcements necessary for the entire village. The size of the shell and the intensity of blowing would affect the sound being produced, and skilled musicians were capable of producing two or three tones out of their calcified instruments. They also utilized these shells as inkwells by cutting the shell in half and using its many whorls or spiral growths to hold dyes and other pigments when painting. The other type of wind instrument used by the ancient Maya was the flute often made of natural materials such as bone, reed, or clay. Of the materials used in the past, in modern times, only the reed flute has seen consistent usage throughout the centuries. There are two kinds of reed flutes used in modern traditional rituals and dances, one with the wax tip and the other known as sweet or spicy tip. The difference between the two is the number of holes and the feeling of the sound produced with one being more melancholy and somber, suitable for ritual dances such as the Danza del Pocho, which we will visit in a future episode, while the other version is happier and more upbeat, better suited for a ritual like the Dance of the Birds, which we will cover next. Both instruments were perfectly suited to accompany the rituals they are played in, as we will come to see. The sounds of this sweet flute can best be heard in the first ritual dance of the Chontal we will explore in this episode, La Danza de los Pájaros, or the Dance of the Birds. It is believed this dance originated in the pueblo of Guaitalpa, in the municipality of Nacajuca, typically danced on the 28th of June in the evening prayers or vespers of the festivals for San Pedro and San Pablo, the Spanish names for the Saints Peter and Paul. The main components of this dance are quite obviously the birds themselves, and occasionally one or several paper birds will be built out of wire or wooden frames, filled with paper, and covered with paint and whatever assortment of feathers the artist decided to use in order to be paraded during the religious processions. 
were worn on the heads of the dancers during the dance itself to convey which bird they represented. The women wear a full dress, most typically made of black cloth, with openings on the side and adorned with feathers at the edges. The men wear a loincloth that is also adorned with feathers in the front and back. Both are barefoot and carry a rattle in their right hand, which they shake to the rhythm of the music. The dance itself is performed by couples, representing mating birds, with corresponding pairs of one male dancing with one female. The movements are in step with the music, and they are meant to imitate birds in their natural habitats, eating, flying, and courting. Many birds can be seen represented during these dances, particularly the more flashy ones, such as toucans, guacamayas, and parrots. However, it must be emphasized that traditionally, only birds from the pantanos or swamps should be represented. These include the kiskadi, wood rails, chacalacas, tiny little chupitas, the recurve-billed bush bird, woodpeckers, kingfishers, white and black herons, and various species of ducks. The second danza we will cover is called the Dance of the Comales, which is a dance of creation performed by the women of Tabasco in which they wear typical Tabascan dresses while holding a comal in each hand to honor Teocohiwa, the resplendent Mother Earth. I have already explained how comales are clay or metal discs that can be placed on top of an open flame in order to toast or heat various foods. Comales are highly utilized members of the Mexican culinary arsenal and can be found in nearly every Mexican kitchen. They are culturally very important and represent the tortilla and corn, hence why it is used as a fertility symbol in the dance honoring the Mother Earth. The significance of corn once again on full display. Since the dance is performed as an homage to fertility and the earth, they are exclusively performed by women. The dresses likewise are adorned with depictions of ears of corn and other vegetation. They dance to the music of reed flutes and drums, all while holding a clay or metal comal in both outstretched hands with the palms facing upward. Developed and performed relatively recently in the municipality of Jalpa de Mendez, this dance isn't yet associated with a specific date or saint, and so can be performed whenever the occasion calls for it, typically during cultural celebrations. The dresses can also be specifically made for this dance, such as a variation with square patterns on the skirt and depictions of pyramids, ears of corn, and corn and... The women dance to the beating of the drum and melody of the sweet reed flutes, they also make figures of the cross, honoring the four cardinal directions, moving rhythmically and shifting positions between one another, but most of all constantly moving the comals without dropping them as they move to the music in reverence of the Mother Earth. In some versions of this dance, there's just one comal being held, and it is transferred from one hand to the other throughout the performance. Now, the following dance could be considered a post-Hispanic dance, since it was created in direct response to the Spanish conquest and is known as the Danza del Caballito, or the Dance of the Little Horse. The dance itself originates in the pueblo of Tamulte de las Sabanas and in the municipality of Centro, with the first documented performance happening in 1531, only a few years after the arrival of Cortes and the Spanish conquistadors. 
The most striking character of the dance is easily the conquistador warrior or knight sitting atop his horse, an animal the natives had never seen before. The dance itself represents the Battle of Centla, where the indigenous Chontal first encountered the strange pairing of man and beast. They believed that the two were one creature, and at the sight of this never-before-seen foe, and with the sound of gunpowder weapons cracking in the Mexican air, the native warriors were disheartened and fell into disarray, eventually fleeing and conceding the victory to the Spanish, paving the way for Hernán Cortés to declare them citizens of the Spanish Empire and sealing all of their fates. Clearly of mestizo origin, the dance is generally celebrated on October 4th during the festivities dedicated to San Francisco de Asís, the founder of the Francescan Order, an order which managed to survive long enough in the tropical Mayan jungles to spread their doctrine over their rival missionary orders, and San Francisco's ritual days typically fall on the first Friday of Lent. San Francisco is also the patron saint of the community of Tamulte de las Sabanas. The other characters in this dance include the Indian wearing a mask and dancing on foot, representing the Chontal, the horse, which represents the Spanish conquistadors, and a promiser, or Señor de las Promesas, which is the Lord of Promises, represented by the Pueblo that follows behind the performance to give offerings, both groups dancing at the same time. The dancer playing the horse dresses up much like those Halloween costumes with the fake legs hanging on your hips to give the illusion that you are riding something. The fabricated horse itself becomes a highly revered symbol in the community, which is even symbolically watered by its caretakers. Here too, the Spanish knight wears flower motifs, while in his right hand he holds a machete and in his left hand he simulates holding the horse's rein. On the horse, we can also see the decorations of the cross, clearly signaling this as a night of Catholicism. Meanwhile, the indigenous character dresses in typical fashion, wearing a brown wooden mask with a hairpiece made of ixtel fibers, which are plant fibers that can be found within a number of Mexican plants, such as the agave and yuca. This native warrior too holds a machete in the right hand and a sonata or rattle in the left hand, which he shakes to the rhythm of the music. The ritual itself begins days before the celebration with the inspection and maintenance of the caballito itself. A construction made out of wood and paper, the caballito is immensely important to the people of the community, and it is this community whose responsibility it is to fix any damages on the caballito and have it prepared and ready for the ritual appointed day. The main focus of the dance is to emphasize the fact that the appearance of the horse meant the death of the native Choco, but that this ending was not the ultimate end and that the village would still be answered in their prayers and offerings by the new religion. Beginning at the house of the drummer, a blessing is spoken for the caballito and off they would go into the streets, both caballito and indigenous warrior being accompanied by the pueblo. The procession would reach the house of a family who was prepared to give their prayers and promises to San Francisco de Asís. And upon securing the family's offerings and prayers, the Indian and Knight squared off in a dance right outside of their home. Upon the defeat of the Indian, the prayers would then be taken in the grand procession to the church with the family or promisers leading the way. Once the group reached the church, a second instance of the dance was performed in the church courtyard. 
The most important part of this dance is when the actual confrontation between the Indio and Caballito occurs. The two opposing characters would trade machete blows to the rhythm of the music, which produced a clanging noise that complements the drums, as well as scraping the machete across the ground to produce a very sharp sound. Eventually, the knight and his caballito slay the indigenous warrior, and he falls to the ground, dead. Then, the whole party gets up and moves to the next house with offerings for San Francisco, and the whole drama plays out again. The dance is said to have originally been performed by one warrior in honor of the god Damul Cantepec, who was the god of agriculture. However, after the Spanish came, they had to change the dance, but kept the mask that represented Cantepec, another of the ways that the natives attempted to undermine the cultural stifling efforts of their new Spanish overlords. We can see further evidence of this undermining in the name of the community itself, for the area that used to worship Tamul Cantepec became known as Tamulte de las Sabanas when the Spanish took over. The dance has seen continued practice since colonial times and was only halted during the 1930s and 40s while the anti-religious movement of Tomas Garrido Canaval, he of the disillusioned women, was in full swing in Tabasco. Even after its reintroduction to the state in 1956, it had not been performed much on a large stage due to the sad nature of its subject matter. This Danza del Caballito would come to represent the struggle against the Spanish. However, the Spanish themselves would come to understand this and decided to infuse the dances with Catholic symbolism and ideology. The missionary priests were aiming to create a blend of religions in order to pacify the natives and establish more control over the communities. Thus was born the Danza del Caballito y el Gigante, or just the Danza Gigante, a variation on the Danza del Caballito where the characters of the Spaniard and the Indian are replaced with religious figures, in this case, the religious figure of David, future king of Israel, facing off against the giant Goliath, as depicted in the biblical story. First established and performed in the community of Tecoluta in Nacajuca during the festival honoring La Virgen de la Asunción, or the Virgin of the Assumption, a santa representing the belief that upon her death, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was taken up to heaven where she resides in peace thanks to her actions in life. Her day of celebration is the Sunday nearest August 15th, which is also when this danza is performed. What is interesting here is the role reversal between the perceived hero of the story and the villain. In this case, the giant Goliath, clearly intended to depict the villain, is the one who walks on foot and wears the wooden mask with plant fiber headwear. The knight on horseback has now been changed to represent the side of good and the hero David. I think we can all see what the intended message of the missionaries was. Instead of fearing the horse and Spaniard that rode it, they wanted the natives to see them both as a form of salvation. The horse would represent progress, while David represented Catholicism and how it would defeat the evils of Goliath, who was now wearing the indigenous style mask representing the natives' misguided beliefs and religion they used to worship. That was the actual evil, and the Spanish religion was actually there to save them. The Europeans could not tolerate the villainization of their arrival, and so they cleverly twisted the meaning of the dance in order to help promote their own agenda. The rest of the ritual remained practically the same, with the dancers going door to door to receive the offerings and prayers of the townspeople, 
performing the dance outside of each house after the ofrendas had been received, and then taking them to the church where the elder men of the village sat and prayed to the Virgin in order to bestow them with a bountiful harvest and good fortune in the coming year. Another variation of this dance is performed in the town of Culico in the municipality of Cunduacan with some notable alterations. If you remember back to our previous episode, this area of Tabasco was where the Nahua community of Simatan would have been located. Since the Nahua resisted Spanish dominion longer than the Chontal who had already submitted, it took nearly 60 years for the missionaries to begin assimilating the indigenous Nahua people. It is said that between the years of 1578 to 1583, the priests from the neighboring municipality of Huimanguillo finally began teaching the indigenous Nahuas the dance. This dance is known as the Danza de Goliath y David, or the Dance of Goliath and David, and has the notable omission of the caballito, as the Chontal were the ones who held the caballito as important in their dance, whereas the Nahua held no such beliefs and opted instead to add more religious characters, notably those of the Archangel Michael, as well as one Captain Luzbel, or Captain Lucifer. The Archangel wears a white shirt and green vest while holding two crosses in the left hand and a wooden spear in the right. Captain Lucifer, meanwhile, wears a black shirt with three red handkerchiefs tied, one each around his waist, neck, and head. In his right hand, he holds a single cross and spear in his left. Along his back, there is also affixed the head of an alligator, which represented evil and death to the superstitious Nawa. We also see the character of young or child David, dressed in a blue shirt, red pants, white belt, and feathered vest, likewise bearing cascabels on his ankles and the by now typical wooden spear held in his hands. The giant Goliath, meanwhile, wears the red vest and has red handkerchiefs tied around his belt, carrying a machete along with a wooden spear like the rest of the characters. There also exists a dragon or alligator character who wears a headband around the head, black vest, and wears an alligator head as his headwear. His representation as evil made clear by the association with the alligator. Finally, there are descriptions of figures on both sides of the conflict, the soldiers of Goliath and the Arabaceros, or the local villagers. Goliath's soldiers can sometimes be dressed as ancient Philistine warriors, while the Arabaceros are dressed in all black. Both hold wooden rifles in their hands, while the locals might also hold a wooden figure of a knight on horseback, hidden under a red handkerchief. All the figures involved wear cascabels on their ankles, which they shake to the rhythm of the drums, and everyone wears a painted wooden mask with plant fibers that was reserved for the Indio in the Danza del Caballito and found on Goliath in the Danza Gigante. Celebrated on the 8th of December, corresponding with the celebrations of La Virgen de la Concepción, or the Virgin of the Conception, which is a santa meant to represent the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, and is considered a day to celebrate families. The dance itself develops over three acts or passages, which are the advent of Saint Michael the Archangel, the passage of the Gator, and the death of the Giant. The first act involves the presentation of all characters who, after they are properly introduced to the crowd, begin to simulate fighting between the side of good, including the Archangel, the young David, and the Arabaceroth, facing off against the giant, the gator, and the soldiers of Goliath, 
led by Captain Lucifer. Dialogue is exchanged between David and Goliath, where both proclaim their superiority and the belief that they will earn the victory with the support of their particular lord, Goliath claiming power from his Captain Lucifer and David from the Catholic God, represented by the Archangel Michael. And so the dance continues, and with various characters coming together, then separating to simulate battles, all to the rhythm of the music. Eventually David, with the help of the Archangel, decapitates both the alligator and the giant, represented by the removal of their masks. This signals the end of the dance and the victory for the forces of good against the forces of evil. So the previous two dances represented the efforts of the Spanish to take the indigenous celebrations and rituals of the natives and infuse them with symbology and beliefs in accordance with the Catholic faith. The next two celebrations, meanwhile, will represent the efforts of the natives to hold on to their pre-Hispanic past and celebrate their indigenous beliefs. The Ceremony del Maromo is a major event in the Chontal communities. Originally called a matani, which means gift or gifting in the Chontal language, the Spanish would replace the word matani with maromo. Now, a maromo referred to the person who physically takes the offerings of food to the church on days of ritual, but it still held on to the meaning of gifting or describing someone who gifts. Originally held in honor of Tamul Cantepec, the god of agriculture, the celebration is now seen during the festivities for San Francisco de Asís from the 2nd to the 4th of October in Tamulte de las Sabanas and during the festival for San Antonio de Padua, another famous Francescan saint who is celebrated from the 12th to the 13th of June in the community of Buenavista, both located close to Villahermosa in the municipality of El Centro. The original celebration would have been undertaken after the harvest when the villagers had plenty of food to offer their deities. La Danza del Tigre, or the Dance of the Tiger, whose song we heard in the intro and outro of last episode, was a big part of this original celebration for Cantepec. The dance originally featured four tigers, or jaguars, fighting against the lone Chontal warrior. The warrior would eventually be defeated, and the four tigers would tie him up and simulate his sacrifice. This dance would be performed in the forest of Cantepec and within the cave of the same name. The celebrants would then take libations and sacrifice birds to Cantepec, likely believing the great god to be a divine jaguar, much like Ko was a divine puma. In 1731, however, the monk Villela forbade the ritual from being practiced, threatening a hundred lashes to anyone caught performing it. From that moment on, the dance of El Tigre was left fragmented and rarely performed, usually only in secret by the bravest members of the communities. In an effort to protect this cultural feature, the mayordomos, or elders of the villages, changed the name from El Tigre to the Maromo, Again, Amaromo being the dancer who was tasked with delivering the offerings to the local church. The ceremony itself consists of a novenado, or a ritual exercise of religious devotion that lasts nine days, during which the preparation of candles, which on the fourth day, began to be delivered by procession from the houses of the villagers to the church itself, 
in essence making the villagers who delivered these candles one of the Maromos. The preparations for the ritual began even earlier than this, however. For three months before the ritual, we see the preparation of the ritual drink called guarapo, or tepache, which is basically just sugarcane juice left to ferment and occasionally flavored with other fruits, such as pineapples. Finally, on the 12th of June, the day of the celebration, the villagers prepare the meals they are to deliver to the church at noon. The main dancer in the ceremony, the aforementioned Maromo, leads a procession from the church to the houses of the villagers to pick up the offerings. On the way back, the celebrants usually encounter the Caballito Blanco, the same one from the Danza del Caballito. These two characters then face off and fight in a choreographed dance to the music of traditional drums and flutes. Eventually, both characters lead the procession the rest of the way to the church where the offerings are presented and a prayer is said in Chontal. Later, the food is shared with the entire community in a large feast signaling the end of the ceremony. By far, the most important Chontal ritual in Tabasco, and last we will describe in this episode, is the Acto Tuba Noshib or the Baile Viejo, also known as the Baila Viejo, or the Old Dance, is performed in the municipality of Nakajuca, which, as we have established, is the center of Chontal culture. Also known as a Huehue by the Chontal, which refers to the old Chontal religious dances, this dance is performed in honor of the divine old man, or the wise old man, a mythical figure who is said to have first taught the Chontal people how to plant crops and make farming tools. This dance is performed exclusively by men and is accompanied by the standard tamborileros and reed flutes. Just before commencing, the participants give thanks to the ancestors who are also honored during this ritual. During the dance, there are typically four or five performers. However, depending on the community, that number can increase. All the dancers are dressed in white shirts and pants with red handkerchiefs tied around each wrist. In their right hand, they hold a chin-chin, which makes noise when shaken, and in their left hand, they hold a fan made of palm leaves. They also wear a mask made of red cedar, decorated with the features of an old man, with a hairpiece made of the fibers of a plant called el holocene, known as the managua tree in English. The same mask is worn in other Chontal rituals we have discussed, such as the Danza del Caballito, the Danza Gigante, and the Danza de David y Goliath. The barefoot dancers then dance rhythmically by stamping their feet loudly, shaking their chinchins, and fluttering their fans to the sound of the music. They move in circles, waving their hands and making shouts of joy. This dance, however jubilant it may appear, is not a celebratory one, but rather a reverential one. Unlike most Mexican traditional dances, where the crowd is likely to engage in fevered bouts of shouting and cheering, during this dance, the crowd remains silent, another example of the importance held by the Chontal people for this ritual. Nothing can be heard except for the sound of music, the shouts of the dancers, and the stomping of their feet. The music heard at the beginning of this episode is from a rendition of this Baile Viejo. It is believed that the dance itself has over 300 distinct rhythms that have been developed for its celebration, with one specific one for the beginning and another to signal the end of the ritual. 
Baile Viejos have been known to run through the night and into the morning, so it is important that the musicians have multiple different rhythms they can switch between in order to not wear out all the participants with the same rhythm. During pre-Hispanic times, this dance was performed before the planting season and by young virgin men, according to some sources. Nowadays, it is performed as a celebration of Chontal culture and traditions, and the various Chontal communities of Nakahuka celebrate the ritual on different days. In Tukta, you can see the dance performed on the 22nd of July, dedicated to the Apostle James. In Tecoluta, you should visit on the 14th of August, with the dance dedicated to the Virgin of the Assumption. On December 13th, you can see it dedicated to Santa Lucia in Mazateupa, while the Pueblo of Guaitalpa celebrates on the 25th of December and offers the rare opportunity of seeing the Baile Viejo celebrated on the same night as Christmas. The question for us regarding this dance is why the Catholic religious leaders allowed it to go on for so long without outlawing it like they did the Danza del Tigre. And while there is a definitive answer out there to settle the matter, we here at the Histories of Mexico don't mind engaging in a little speculation. Perhaps the dances such as El Tigre, which contained an actual human sacrifice, were just too pagan for the religious sensibilities of the Francescan monks. So too would the Danza del Caballito undergo alterations in order to make it more palatable and pro-Spain to the very Spanish priests in charge. The Baile Viejo in comparison does not seem to celebrate the more sacrificial aspects of the indigenous religion, and the locals must have realized that simply by telling the priests that the celebration was in honor of this saint or this santa, then they might be left to their own devices, and it seems that the idea worked. There doesn't seem to be any pause to the celebrations of El Baile Viejo throughout the colonial years, and it appears this agreement of El Baile Viejo celebrated in honor of a Catholic figure would serve as a basis for future assimilation and integration between the two cultures. But we have finally reached the end of our episode and exploration of the Chontal history and religious practices. In this episode, we explored the pre-Hispanic Choco and their religion. Then we moved on to discuss the various religious festivals held throughout the state. And finally, we covered seven of the most important Chontal ritual dances still performed in the state to this day. We by no means have even come to scratch the surface of all of the rituals found in Tabasco. However, we have gone over some of the more notable or emblematic ones of the state. In the next episode, we will finally give the Tzetzals their due and explore their mythological origins as well as their culture in pre-Hispanic times. Whereas the Chocos of last episode were most active in the post-classical, we will be jumping back a bit to the classical proper and explore some of the archaeological sites built during this time that still stand to this day, as well as discuss some of the aspects of the lives and accomplishments of their inhabitants. The next episode will likely be out in a little over a week, maybe sooner if I really hustle, but please stay tuned for that. And as always, do not forget to recommend the podcast if you are enjoying it and drop a rating and review on whatever podcast service you found this on. Thank you for listening. Gracias y que viva bien. Adios and goodbye for now.